called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the, according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleships to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Uh, Welcome, everyone, and happy Mother's Day to all the mothers and to all who have um, been like mothers uh, to us. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made, and we ask once more that in the hearing of your word, you would speak to us, and that we would find a word that would transform us, that would reshape us, so that we might be those whom you have called and bear faithful witness to the world. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. So I want you to just know that um, we're going to be finishing up the narrative lectionary this month. Uh, with the remaining weeks devoted to Paul's letter to the Romans. This letter that Paul has written to the church in Rome is generally considered to be the most important of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament. And without question, 
it's had the most profound influence in Western uh, Protestant theology. The letter itself uh, begins like a typical ancient letter. It has the name of the one who's written, who's writing it, uh, the addressee, followed by a greeting, some thanksgiving. And then here Paul gives an explanation of why uh, he has not yet been able to visit them and looks forward to a mutually uh, beneficial future meeting. And he concludes his introductory remarks uh, by assuring them that he is eager to preach the gospel to them. And then he writes what are perhaps two of the most significant verses in the entire Bible, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And the rest of the letter to the Romans, the next 15 and a half chapters, uh, is a defense and explication of these two verses. And so I want to take a closer look at these two verses today. Paul begins by stating that he is not ashamed of the gospel. He is not ashamed of the gospel. So we might wonder, what is it about the gospel that he or anyone might be ashamed of? Well, I think it's because the central claim of Christianity, which he has just explained, is that God's fulfillment of his promises to his people Israel is going to happen and has happened through his son, Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead. It might have been acceptable to say that Jesus, the son of God, showed us an exemplary life to which we should all imitate, that he showed through his teaching and his acts of compassion and deeds of mercy how we also ought to live our lives, and that he was unjustly murdered by an oppressive empire. But to say that he was raised from the dead, and then he only revealed himself after that resurrection to a handful of people before ascending into the heavens, it just sounds ridiculous. Looked at objectively or medically, we know it is impossible to suffer as Jesus suffered and for him to be resuscitated or revived or resurrected three days later. None of us has seen anything like this. It's just impossible. We know this. Uh, I can remember years ago uh, when I was in college working in the hospital and one of my jobs um, you know, when people died, was to take the body down to the morgue and then to release the body uh, to the, uh, the funeral homes. And I can tell you, like, when you see a body just die, like, it's different. It goes a dramatic physical change in just a few minutes and hours. It's just inconceivable. It's inconceivable that three days later, I mean, three hours later, let alone three days later, that it can somehow come back to life. It, it, just, it just cannot be done. It's not within any sort of realm of possibility. And so some Christians today continue to equivocate on this point, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it is so hard to believe 
And frankly, they're ashamed to declare it. So instead, many Christians prefer to focus instead on Jesus' more palatable teachings, right? We can all buy into, hey, let's love one another. Let's be kind to the poor. Like, everyone can accept that. There's nothing to be ashamed about teaching people, hey, here's what Jesus said. But any meaningfully historical and orthodox faith is, it must be rooted in this foundational faith. Like, there, there is no Christianity without this outrageous claim. Jesus has been raised from the dead. So another potential source of shame then is that the resurrection itself presupposes that the Savior, the one that Paul has declared the Lord, the Son of God, died. How can the Son of God die? And not just die, but die such an ignoble, humiliating, shameful death on a cross. The worst possible kind of death. There's a, you know, critics of Christianity picked up on this from the very beginning. In, in the third century, uh, someone drew a graffiti of, uh, of a cross with the, with the body of a man and the head of a donkey. And the graffiti reads, um, Alex worships his God, right? It was ridiculous to think that God would allow God's son to die. In the, like, how can you worship Someone who's just died on the cross. It's shameful. And Paul readily acknowledges this. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, for example, he writes that the cross of Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews who are looking for a sign and foolishness to Gentiles who are looking for wisdom. Flashy miracles, secretive wisdom, that will impress, that will persuade people. But Paul says, we preach Christ crucified he readily embraces the shame of the cross the center of the gospel message is that Jesus Christ was crucified and died a humiliating death and has been raised from the dead still another source of shame could be to say that Jesus is Lord just goes against the spirit of the age it sounds so exclusive so narrow-minded to say that Jesus Christ is the Lord. In Paul's day, as today, there was a multiplicity of gods. Every nation, every tribe had their own gods. And to claim that there is only one supreme God and that every other god is an idol and false, it just was considered ridiculous as much as it is considered intolerant today. People then and now claim there, there are other gods. I mean, just let's just accept one another's gods. You have your God, you worship the way you want, and I'll worship my God the way that I want to. So it can be feel shameful to make a claim that goes so contrary to the ethos of everyone around you. So there, I think there are many possible reasons why Paul and others could be ashamed of the gospel then and today. And I know that all of us at some point, to some degree, have been ashamed of the gospel. It's not that necessarily you are anti-gospel or anti-Christian, but you've been in situations where you didn't make your beliefs well known. You didn't go out of your way to publicize it. 
You didn't want your classmates or your coworkers or your bosses or your neighbors to think that you were some kind of religious fanatic. So you downplayed your faith. You kept quiet about your beliefs to get along with others. I can remember when I was a uh, much more zealous uh, youth pastor. Uh, I would occasionally make the kids, when we'd go to like uh, McDonald's or Burger King, I myself or I'd ask one of the kids to stand up and to say a prayer out loud in Thanksgiving for the meal we were about to eat. Uh, just to let them know, and perhaps to let myself know, that we are not ashamed to be Christians and that it's okay to let others know. Uh, I know they were ashamed of me and embarrassed for me, so I know that. We have reasons to be ashamed. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because, he says, it is the power of God for salvation. He's not ashamed because it is the power of God for salvation. It's power. My wife and I recently watched a documentary um, called The Way Down. I don't know if anyone else has uh, seen that. Um, it's a story of a woman named uh, Gwen Shamblin and her uh, so-called church, uh, which she established. Now, according to her teaching, the primary sign of one's faith and purity is their thinness. And if you're not thin, the sign of your discipleship and closeness with God is how much weight you lost that week. That's, right? that's, that's her teaching. If you're overweight, it means you're worshiping the refrigerator and you need to repent and go on a fast. Many of you are laughing. And you know when I watched it, I thought, this is insane. How could anybody buy into this? And yet she's had thousands and thousands of followers Her teaching was taught in tens of thousands of churches. Her fusion of Christian discipleship with an intuitive weight loss program persuaded many, many people. For many people, they didn't care that she denied the doctrine of the Trinity and that she really wasn't a meaningfully orthodox Christian, even though she said this is, you know, Christianity. As long as they were losing weight, they didn't care. They didn't care, or they were not ashamed to be called part of a cult because it worked. They were losing weight. Even when it was revealed that Gwen Shamblin was clearly a sham, And just one more in the long line of charismatic leaders who have led their people astray, taking advantage of vulnerable people to enrich themselves materialistically and to support their, you know, extravagant lifestyles. Even when that was all made clear, still there were people who were losing weight and continued to believe that this was the word of God. I've learned over the years that for most people, when it comes to faith or any form of faith or really just about anything, power will trump truth. People tend to take a very pragmatic approach and they will ask the question, does it work? Rather than, is this true? Does it have power to make my life better? 
doesn't make me feel good. If it does, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to buy into it, regardless of what other people think, regardless of if my family are ashamed of the fact that I'm involved in this. Right? I mean, this is one of the reasons why so many people believe very questionable ideas and even some crazy outright lies. Um, I can remember as a kid, maybe some of you saw this too, my mom would routinely place sliced cucumbers on her face at night. Right? So she'd, she'd lie on the couch with cucumbers all over her face and, and watch TV. And I remember thinking, man, mom, aren't you like embarrassed? Aren't you ashamed that you're doing, like, it just looks so weird. And my mom would always say, no, this is, you know, it's keeping my skin looking young. It's good for me. And so she didn't care what her son thought. She was not ashamed to be doing something that she was convinced that was helping her feel better. People make all sorts of claims today about skin products to improve their skins, to make, you know, make it look 10 years younger, um, how to lose weight without trying. Um, I'm still waiting for a potato chip diet to come out. Um, you know, my, my point isn't really to say, you know, whether cucumbers work or not. I, I don't even know. Um, but it's that people will buy into and will believe if it works for them, right? It's a very kind of a pragmatic approach to life. If it works, if it has power, then I'm going to go with it. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. We're going to talk about the truth of his claims later, but I want to just focus here. Paul is saying the gospel has power. It has power for salvation. And this is something that he himself has experienced in his own life. He went from being a murderous zealot, wanting to to put people in prison, to put people to death, standing by while Stephen was stoned. Like He went from that to what he is now a humble servant for life, for everyone. He had a radical change of heart, and he, he himself has experienced the power. And not only himself, he's seen that this power transforming the lives of so many people around him, from kings to slaves, from Jews and Gentiles, everyone around him. And it was a kind of transformation. It was a power that he had never known before. It went beyond his expectations. It went beyond his imaginations. Last week, we heard about the apostle Peter and his encounter with the Gentile and Roman centurion, Cornelius, and how in that encounter, Peter was able to say, now truly I understand that God shows no impartiality. In that moment, he saw, wow, God really, you know, is trying to save everybody, not just the Jews. And Paul now here reaffirms that same truth. He says that the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone. That is an incredibly radical and inclusive message. An inconceivable power. Because it made fellowship possible when everyone thought that this sort of fellowship was impossible. I think it's a message that they just could not believe. Then... And it's a message I think we desperately need to hear more today. The other day I was listening to a a podcast where the author uh, Helen Russell was being interviewed uh, about her book, 
uh, cleverly titled The Year of Living Danishly. The book is about what she, uh, the author, a British Londoner, learned while spending a year in Denmark. She mentions that Denmark and the other Scandinavian countries routinely are at the top of the world happiness rankings, right? So when the uh, UN publishes these reports, they're always at the top. You know, Denmark, Sweden, and um, Norway, those other countries. And so she wanted to know if that were true, and if so, why? So she goes on then to talk about her life there, and she describes Denmark as a kind of social utopia. Said that if people are willing to trust their government and willing to give roughly 50% in taxes, then yes, everyone, everyone can work fewer hours, be less stressed, and have more time for their families and for their hobbies. Sounds great. Everyone can be happier. But before we all decide to move to Denmark, she noted, though not nearly strong enough, that when she said everyone, she meant every Dane. It's a very homogenous country. So if you happen to be Danish, then yes, you can fit in, conform, and maybe be happy, and be happier. But if you're not, you know. The gospel offers an alternative vision of community of salvation to everyone who believes. That's a remarkable word, everyone. To Jews and Gentiles, to the British and the Danes, blacks and whites, Republicans and Democrats, pro-choice, pro-life. And here's the crux of Paul's argument. He says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is a power of salvation for everyone who believes. For in it, that is in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The good news, the gospel, reveals the righteousness of God. Now think about that for a sec. When you hear the righteousness of God, what comes to mind? does it automatically lead you to good news? It probably doesn't. I think for most people, for most religious people, when they hear the righteousness of God, it, you, you think of like this sort of um, absolute purity and, and moral judgment, holiness of God. That's the righteousness of God. God is righteous. God is right all the time. So to be in the presence of the righteousness of God, it doesn't sound like good news. It sounds more like a scary place to stand. To be in judgment, in moral judgment, and to be found lacking. So how can the righteousness of God, the moral purity and judgment of God, possibly be a revealing of the good news? You know, for a long time, I did not really understand this or make this connection. But this is Paul's key insight. The righteousness of God is not merely God's justice. It is also God's salvation. Let me say that again. The righteousness of God is not merely 
God's perfect and absolute justice. The righteousness of God is also God's salvation. Now, this is not new to Paul. He picks this up from Isaiah and others. And I want to show you, can I get that slide up? This is from Isaiah 51. This is God speaking. And God says, my righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. And my arm will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me and for my arm will wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever. My salvation to all generations. Like, you can see this, right? My righteousness is synonymous with my salvation. Right? God, God is repeating here, like, all this stuff is going to vanish. All of this is going to go away. But my righteousness, my salvation is forever. God's righteousness is the same thing as God's salvation. Maybe you know that already because, like, that's like, wow. That's like, really, wow, you know? For God to be righteous then, it means that God has to save. That's the promise. That's the gospel. I am righteous means I'm going to save you. For Paul to say that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, it's not that God's justice and God's judgment is being revealed. He's saying that the righteousness of God equals salvation and that salvation has been revealed through his son, Jesus Christ, through the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the good news. And now here, Paul, you know, he could have backed up his claims with this verse, uh, you know, which would have been great. But instead, he goes to Habakkuk chapter 2. He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written in Habakkuk 2, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you look up Habakkuk 2 in your Bibles, you will see that the quote in context, and you'll notice that Paul has misquoted it. In the Hebrew, it says, but the righteous will live by his faith. There's a personal pronoun, his faith. But in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, which Paul and everybody else was using, they translated as, but the righteous one will live by my faith. That is, by God's faith or God's faithfulness. Right? So so it's unclear. Is it, do you live by your faith or do you live by God's faith? And what does Paul do? He leaves out both possessive pronouns. And he just says, we'll live by faith. It's kind of just like, just faith. On top of that, the Greek is even more ambiguous because the phrase by faith could modify either the righteous or it could modify live. 
So grammatically, it could mean the one who is righteous, that is made righteous by faith, shall live. Or it could mean that the one who is righteous, the one who is good, shall live out in faith, in faithfulness. Now, I know I can tell it's a little bit confusing. And maybe it's like, why does this even matter? It's just nitpicking grammar, which I know you don't like me doing. But you can argue that the entire Protestant Reformation, the division between Catholics and Protestants today, is rooted in this grammatical point. All of the history of the church of the last 500 years was a dispute over how to translate this. So it's important. So what does Paul mean? Now, if you read the rest of the letter... I think it's quite clear what he meant, which he meant, and how this verse ought to be translated. But today, let me just offer this illustration as a brief and introductory explanation. So by chance, or perhaps by God's great providence, one of my kids this week quoted a line from an old movie that I loved as a teenager, And there's a line in the movie that I've quoted to my family and my kids for decades. Um, And because I've said this movie line so often, now my kids will occasionally say it to me uh, when the occasion is is right um, to humor me. And, um, you know, we'll try to say it in the way that it was said in the movie. So I'll try to catch the the intonation uh, and so on. And so the way it works in my family is that um, if someone asks a question that we don't know the answer to, uh, we, the person would respond with this quote. And the quote is, don't know. Not sure i tell you, even if I knew. So that's the quote. So that's the context, okay? Anybody know where that's from? No one, of course. It's a <laughs> so the, the line comes from a 1985 movie. So I saw this when I was a teenager. It's a comedic homage to Bruce Lee and martial arts films in general called The Last Dragon. The Last Dragon. I want to be clear, uh, I don't think it's a great movie. <laughs> but it was, as a, as a teenager, it was one of my all-time favorite movies. It was all, it was, I just loved it. Um, and it, it, was just, it was formative in, in my uh, <laughs> development. Anyway, so let me just set up the scene for you. So in, this, in the movie, the baddie, the, the bad guy, uh, is a guy named the Shogun of Harlem. And he's looking for Bruce Leroy. Uh, to have the ultimate showdown for martial arts supremacy, right? So he goes to Bruce Leroy's father's pizza parlor, and he very threateningly asks the father, where's Leroy? And the father, understandably shaken and scared, he replies, don't know. Not sure I tell you, even if I knew. Or that's what I thought he said. For four decades, (laughs) I repeated that line. And so this week, we're watching the movie together, you know, and I'm really enjoying it, and we're coming to this pivotal scene. And the scene plays out, and my kids are just laughing because they realize I've been misquoting him (laughs) for four decades. The quote isn't, don't know, not sure, I tell you, even if I knew. The actual quote is, don't know. Not sure I'd tell you if I did. 
Now, it's a very slight change, right? I didn't get the quote exactly right. And actually, the, the change in those few words really makes no difference in what was being said, right? It, it carries the same idea. In fact, I would even argue that I improved on the original line. <laughs> but here's the thing about quoting a line from a movie or from a verse, as Paul does here in the Bible. When you quote something like that, you're not just quoting some, some sentence, some abstract idea out of the blue with no context that no one knows about. A quote in context, it elicits all kinds of memories, all kinds of emotions. Right? Every time I've said that quote in my family over the years, like it took me back just for, for a second to my childhood and then all the other times that we've said that quote. And now, next year when I say it again, they're going to remember this week, right? It, it's wrapped up in all kinds of history and memory and family and, and so on. <clears throat> Imagine if all these years, in those moments, instead of quoting that movie, I would have said something like, I don't know, go look it up. Go ask your mom. Unmemorable, we'd never talk about it. It would have no weight. And I wonder if Paul is doing something similar, has created something similar here. Now, I don't think we can ever know whether he intentionally left out those possessive pronouns or if he's just misremembering, which I think is what's what's happening. You know, like you memorize Bible verses and I see this in myself uh, when I'm teaching confirmation class, for example, and and we're going over memory verses, like I misspeak or I misremember certain words. Again, I'm getting the gist of it, right? But over time, you know, your, your memory degrades. Whether he's doing it intentionally or he's misquoting, the point he's making and the larger truth that he's making is still true. And that's the thing. It's a point that he's going to make throughout the rest of the letter. And so whatever ambiguity there might be here in these opening verses will get cleared up as you go through the rest of the letter. But his concern, as you'll see, is that the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. And his concern is not about how shall we live to be righteous, how can we become righteous, but that by faith we are declared righteous, that righteousness has been imputed to us It is a forensic understanding of what righteousness is. It's something that God, in his righteousness, in his salvation, simply declares. Paul's misquote accurately communicates the essential meaning and the message. And as he does so, for the people who hear it, 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 it's going to conjure up all these memories of God's faithfulness of what God's righteousness looked like in all of the stories of the Bible that they knew about. They'll know that in this quote, the righteous shall live by faith. All of the stuff that happened before, it's all going to come back. And this was really the great rediscovery of the Protestant Reformation. This is going to be Paul's argument. It's not that a 
righteous person should continue to live in a righteous sort of way, which he should, of course, but rather it's about the more primary and fundamental fact that God has declared those by faith to be righteous, that is to be saved. The righteousness of God makes us righteous. God saves. That's the gospel. We live only because we have been saved. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. And, you know, let, let these words just resonate in your minds so that even if you misremember and misquote, let it flood your soul with this assurance of God's righteousness and faithfulness and love for you. The gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God, that is, the salvation of God has been revealed to everyone. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I do know this and I will tell you again and again. Believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. God, we know that this is, yeah, it's just so hard to believe that somehow through the cross, through whatever mechanism, process, you have declared us righteous, that you have declared us saved by your power. Help us to believe. Give us the faith to really believe that you have saved us and so saved God. Help us to live out our lives then in the faithfulness and the joy, the compassion, the love that your spirit continues to enable us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.